So uh, let's talk for a minute about these who are called the Magi, or often referred to as the wise men. A lot of legends have grown up around this story. Uh, first of all, um, what we read in the text here is not necessarily the same as what people often think about or represent as say, uh, the wise men here. In fact, I was going to bring our nativity thing from outside there as an illustration, but I, I didn't do it. But. So uh, we typically think of three wise men. Why is that? Probably because they gave three gifts, and so we assume, well, one gift for each person. But, of course, the text doesn't say that. Legend has uh, developed over the, primarily during the Middle Ages, that these three wise men were actually kings. That they were three of them, and that the three wise men actually were descendants of the three sons of Noah. They even have names for them. Casper, Balthazar, and Melchior, the wise men's three names. There's even a 12th century bishop that claimed to have found their bones. The Bible refers to these as the Magi. They were a class of priests known for their skills in astronomy, astrology, magic, and especially the interpretation of dreams. Our word magic and magician comes from this Greek word uh, magoi or magi. Um, there are magi mentioned also in the New Testament in the book of Acts. So let's just take a quick look at a couple of those. Acts chapter 8, okay? So historically, what we know about the Magi is that they were not kings, but they were priests. Uh, they were priests that typically were a part of the king's royal counselors. They were often identified within a larger group of counselors as wise men, thus we get that name. And they were especially used to determine the will of the gods through the observation of the stars and the planets in the skies. In the book of Acts, in chapter 8, verses 9 through 12, we read uh, about, about a, um, a magi. Let's see, uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. Uh, this is... Uh, this is in the city of Samaria. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the power of God. And they were giving attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike, and Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Simon the magician is how uh, he's usually referred to, but uh, the word that's used to describe what he did 
is the same word that we see in the story of the wise men here in Matthew chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 13, Paul runs across another man who was uh, uh, doing uh, practices similar to the Magi that we read about in Matthew 2. So Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 8, But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And so the magi that we read about in Matthew chapter 2 uh, were not men that were simply isolated to the uh, areas of the east of Israel, but actually some of them continued to practice the arts that the Magi practiced, as we read about there in the book of Acts. It says in Matthew chapter 2 that these Magi came from the east. Now the east, we know again historically, is going to focus on the kingdoms east of Israel. That would include Babylon, which is today's Iraq, Persia, which is today's Iran, and then the kingdom of Media, which is, used to be a part of Persia. And uh, the Magi uh, typically came from those particular kingdoms. So we don't know where these Magi are from. It just says uh, they saw his star while they were in the east and uh, then headed for Jerusalem. So we don't know from the text how many there were. We don't know that they traveled on camels, which they may or may not have. And we don't know exactly where in the east they came from. And none of those things are really that important for uh, Matthew's purposes here in the text. The thing that draws most people's attention in this Matthew chapter 2 is this idea of the star. Um, you noticed it says in verse 2, For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Now the star, there's been all kinds of speculation as to what would have caused that star. The three most prominent ones are that it was a supernova, which is when a star actually burns itself out and it and it kind of explodes with this brilliant light before it goes dark. But there's no historical record of uh, any such kind of a thing in the ancient records. Um, second possibility is that it was a comet. Now the comet we're most familiar with is Halley's Comet. It is visible every 77 years. It's appeared, it appeared, historically, as they can trace it back, uh, about six years before the birth of Christ. Now, the birth of Christ, according to the ancient calendars, occurred about, and this won't make sense, but anyway, it's a calendar thing. Christ was born in 6 B.C. So, again, that's... Uh, you know, there was a couple different calendars competing for 
supremacy, I guess. But anyway, um, when, they, when you read about the dating of the birth of Jesus Christ, typically uh, they will put it at 6 B.C., six years before the Common Era, I guess is what they say today. So Halley's Comet didn't really quite fit the timetable here, okay? And so the third thing, which you'll read about, is that there was a conjunction of three planets, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, that all lined up at one point and produced what appeared to be a brilliant light from the conjoining of those three planets. Jupiter and Saturn line up in their orbits about every 20 years. Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars line up in their orbits about 800, every 805 years. This rare conjoining of planets did occur in 6 and 7 BC, or 6 to 7 BC. However, a conjoining of planets is not necessarily a star. Now the problem we have is when we try and take a supernatural event and trying to provide a natural explanation for it. This was a miraculous event. This star uh, not only was seen in the east, but once the wise men got to Jerusalem, it actually moved ahead of them and stood over the house in the city of Bethlehem where Jesus was staying. Now the interesting thing about that is Bethlehem is only five or six miles from Jerusalem. And yet the star guided those wise men from Jerusalem to Bethlehem in a way that really isn't explained by any of these natural explanations that people give. So let's start with actually what the text does say. Now, Jesus, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So Matthew 2, the account of these wise men, occurs after the birth of Jesus. They're still in Bethlehem, but he's no longer in a manger. Jesus is probably from uh, between one and two years old at this point. So the birth narrative of Christ is in Matthew chapter 1, and then there's a gap of up to two years uh, before Matthew chapter 2 begins. And these events occur in the days of Herod the king. So let's find out a little bit about Herod the king. Herod the king actually died in 4 B.C., which is two years after the birth of Christ. And so when we read about Herod wanting to kill the child and they go down to Egypt and stay, they stayed down there until Herod died. So they were probably in Egypt for two years before they returned back. There's actually five Herods in the Bible, in the New Testament. One of the enjoyable things about reading the New Testament is the names that we get to read from time to time and how a lot of these names are duplicates. 
So for instance, as we've been reading in the Gospel of John on Wednesday nights, um, and we read about John in the Gospel of John, the John that you read about in the Gospel of John is not the John that wrote the, the book of John. He's John the Baptist. And so sometimes, uh, like there's multiple Simons in the New Testament. Um, in fact, there's even multiple Jesuses. There's other people in the New Testament with the name Jesus. And uh, there were actually two apostles that were called Jude or Judas. And uh, so in the, in, the, in the narrative here in Matthew chapter 2, Herod the king that is spoken of here is called Herod the Great. Um, he was alive when Jesus was born. And he died in the city of Jericho, not the city of Jerusalem, where we find them here. He was appointed as the governor of Judea by uh, the Caesar in 47 B.C. So he's been the ruler in Judea for over 40 years here in Matthew chapter 2. The Roman Senate gave him the title King of the Jews. Now, Herod the Great was not a Jew. He was actually an Edomite who married a Jewish wife um, for the purposes of gaining favor with the Jewish people. He, reigned under the, he ruled under the reign of Caesar Augustus, who is mentioned in Luke's gospel account. There's a second Herod that's mentioned in Matthew 2, verse 22, who's named Herod Archelaus, and Rick mentioned that name, uh, he's the one that took Herod the Great's place that kept Joseph from coming back to Judea and instead going to Nazareth. There's Herod the Tetrarch um, in the Gospels. There's Herod Agrippa in the book of Acts. And there's Herod Agrippa II. So as you're reading through the Bible and you run across Herod, just remember there's five of them. And uh, they're not all the same person. This particular Herod was characterized with uh, a great fear or suspicion of someone taking away his throne. And so he quickly eliminated uh, anybody that he felt would be a rival to his throne. And historically, he killed his own wife, two of his sons, and he executed his eldest son just a few days before his death. So Herod the Great was very suspicious of anybody that might be a threat to his rule. He was not a very popular king. In fact, he was so unpopular that he recognized that when he died, no one would grieve for him. And so just before he died, he had his soldiers round up all the leading men of the city, and he had them put to death on the day that he died, just so that he could guarantee that there would be grieving on the day of his death. Not a very, well, not a very good guy, all right? But it sets the background for what happens here in Matthew chapter 2. 
we read that Magi now came from the east there in verse 1. Now, as, as I said before, the Magi were priests, not kings. And uh, they come uh, from some of these distant kingdoms to the east. We don't know which one. And they're, they're looking for one question. Notice what they ask for in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. They want to know where. They saw, notice, not the star, his star. A very specific designation of a particular star that caused them to realize that the king of the Jews had been born. They simply didn't know where. And so they come to Jerusalem and they ask where the king of the Jews had been born. Well, how did they know that? They came looking for a Jewish king. But how did they know to come to Jerusalem uh, in the first place? And the answer to that is in Numbers chapter 24. The Old Testament book of Numbers, written by Moses, way back 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, in Numbers chapter 24, we have a prophecy that gives rise to this understanding and connection between the star and the king of the Jews. Numbers chapter 24 is in a section of scripture that is, it's uh, Numbers 24, 17. It, it's in a, a, a section that is all about a prophet by the name of Balaam. Balaam, in, uh, in the days of Moses, as the children of Israel were traveling from Egypt on their way to the promised land, the land of Canaan, and they're conquering all of these kingdoms in their way that are between them and the land of Canaan. One of those kingdoms was the kingdom of the Moabites. The Moabites had a king whose name was Balak. And Balak hired a prophet from the east by the name of Balaam. And Balak hired this prophet to do one thing, to curse the nation of Israel. And so Balak hires Balaam, and Balaam comes, and they go up to a high mountain, and he's offering offerings and sacrifices. And then when Balak opens his mouth to speak curses against Israel, God takes the curse, and he turns it into a blessing. And three times, Balaam blesses the people of Israel. And a part of one of those blessings is in Numbers chapter 24. And here's what Balaam says. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And that was his curse turned into a blessing. 
and Balaam here, under the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit, prophesies the coming of one who will rule over Israel. And his coming will be associated with a star. And so the star that we read about in Matthew chapter 2, when these wise men refer to it as his star, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now these magi, they're not Jewish. They're Gentiles. And they're far, far away from where the land of Israel is. Um, how did they find out about this star? They didn't know from the scripture that the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem. They weren't familiar with the Jewish scripture, at least not to the extent that uh, they knew where the birthplace was. Where did the wise men learn about the star? And the answer is in the book of Daniel. So let's go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. And uh, for those of you that are kind of uh, maybe familiar with these Old Testament stories, where is Daniel in the book of Daniel, location-wise? Babylon. Babylon is one of the kingdoms from which these magi came, uh, historically. Now, we're, uh, we're 600 years before the birth of Christ in the book of Daniel. But what was it that Daniel was able to do in the book of Daniel that caused him to be elevated to the position of authority that he had? Do you remember what Daniel was good at? Interpreting dreams. That's what Magi did. They gave the interpretation of dreams. And in Daniel chapter 1, let me see if I can find that. There's a lot of verses here that relate to Daniel. Verse 20. It says, As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and conjurers who were in all of his realm. And there Nebuchadnezzar is talking about four people who were wiser than all of the magicians and the magi in his kingdom. Those four people were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Four young Jewish men who had been taken into exile in Babylon. And then in Daniel chapter 2, verse 2, Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the dream, uh, before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit, spirit is anxious to understand the dream. He calls in all of his wise men. He said, I had a dream and I really want to know what it means. And so the wise men all say, O oh, king, live forever. Tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it means. Nebuchadnezzar is no fool. He said, no, if you're wise men, you tell me the dream that I dreamed and what it means. And they say, well, there's no man on earth that has that power to have the spirit of the gods in him. And then there's one man that steps forth. And of course, that man, and in Daniel 2, Verse um, 10, um, okay, that's what I just mentioned. And then in verse 27, 
Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. And so Daniel interprets the king's dream. And as you continue to read on, all of these verses that I just mentioned have the word for magi within them. The magi were a part of King Nebuchadnezzar's royal court. And Daniel was elevated to be the chief of the magicians in the whole kingdom of Babylon because of his ability to interpret the king's dreams. He was elevated to the highest position in the kingdom because of that interpretation. Where did the Magi learn about Numbers 24, 17? They learned it from Daniel. 600 years before the coming of the star. And yet the Magi would have passed that knowledge down to succeeding generations as priests and prophets did in the ancient world. So... The Magi from the East knew that this star heralded the coming of the King of the Jews. And because he's the King of the Jews, the place to look for him would be where? Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. And so they see the star, and they, and they come to Jerusalem, and they come with one question. Where is he who is to be born the king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Now, Herod, again, he's not Jewish. He didn't know. He didn't know where the king of the Jews was supposed to be born. In fact, remember, that's his title, the king of the Jews. So he goes to the chief priests, the Jewish priests, the Jewish rabbis, we would say, and said, tell me, where is this king supposed to be born? The Jewish scribes and the Pharisees and the rulers read from Matthew, or Micah 5.2. So we read this in Matthew chapter 2. Gathering to, verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And then Herod, not being Jewish, he didn't know where, as I said. Their response, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Israel. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And he's quoting there from the prophet Micah, back in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah lived, uh, Micah was actually contemporary with Daniel. And so we realize that the birthplace of the Messiah is not only going to be associated with a star, but it's going to be the city of Jerusalem, or the city of Bethlehem. It's about five or six miles from Jerusalem. Um, other than the birth of Christ, what is Bethlehem noted for? David. David. It's the birthplace of David. It's the city of David. Bethlehem, the house of bread. So it has that meaning as well. 
Jesus, the son of David, born in the same little village that King David was born in, Bethlehem. Bethlehem became the birthplace of the Messiah, prophesied by the prophet Micah 600 years before his birth. Then Herod does something kind of interesting in verse 7. Now remember, um, Herod's not Jewish. You just kind of have to remember that. So, um, but he is concerned about something. So in verse 7 of Matthew 2, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Now there's two things in that verse that we have to kind of maybe consider. Why secretly? And two, why did he want to know the exact time the star occurred? The answer to those two things is really down in verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So Herod, in secret, he's planning this plot to kill this one who's called the king of the Jews. He secretly calls them and asks them to find out when the star appeared. And then he says in verse 8, He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Typical politician, okay? We haven't changed. It's in the nature of man. His intent is to find the child so he can put him to death because this child is a threat to his throne. And he's going to use the wise men to find him. He's going to use the wise men to tell him when was this child born. Because if he can't find the individual child, which he can't, he's going to kill every baby boy born in the city of Bethlehem from two years old and under, just to make sure he gets him. Verse 9, After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. See, this tells us that this is not a normal, natural event that's taking place. This is a star of some kind that's been placed there by God himself to guide these wise men to the very house in which Jesus was staying. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
the three gifts. This is where the number three often comes from. Yes. Yeah, they're, they, uh, he's born in Bethlehem. He stays in Bethlehem until they flee to Egypt. He's probably in Egypt for a couple, two years, assuming uh, the death of Herod at 4 BC. And then he returns, but not to Bethlehem, because Herod's son was ruling in his place. And he feared that. And the angel warned them, uh, to go to Nazareth, which fulfilled a prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. So Nazareth is not down in Judea, and so he was out of the territory of Archelaus. Yeah, Joe? Well, <laughs> yes. That's right, that's right, yeah. Now, the other thing in this passage here uh, in verse uh, 11. These are Gentile priests who recognize from Old Testament Scripture and the presence of this star that this one who is born king of the Jews is to be worshipped. Why would these wise men, I mean, we understand the giving of the gifts, but it says they bowed down before him and worshipped. What does that indicate for us? That these three, uh, three, I'm calling them three, these wise men knew. Let me make it easier for you. Who is always the proper object of worship in the New Testament? God is. The fact that they worshiped him is an indication that they recognized him not simply as a king, but as deity. Now, how would they know that? Well, if you go back, and let's do it just because it's good experience. Go back to Micah 5.2. Okay? Micah 5.2. Okay, so Micah, Old Testament or New Testament? Old. Uh, what part? Beginning of the Old Testament or the end? End. It's one of the 12 minor prophets. They're those little, at the end of the Old Testament, you've got these little tiny short books written by different prophets. There's one called Micah. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Micah 5.2. The part of Micah 5.2 that's quoted in Matthew 2 isn't the complete quotation. But when you read the complete quotation, you can understand how the Magi recognized that this king was more than just a man. Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. You see, the last part of that verse isn't applicable to any man. It's speaking of one who existed from the days of eternity. It's that connection that enabled them to recognize that this baby boy, this young boy, is not just the coming king of the Jews, but he is God in the flesh. And thus, they worship him. Yes. The wise men of the ancient world were men who gathered wisdom from all of the different cultures that surrounded them. In fact, when we read our Old Testament book of Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom, there are three chapters in the book of Proverbs that are taken word for word from the writings of an Egyptian, of an Egyptian, the writings of a group of Egyptian wise men that have been discovered. So when Solomon is collecting the Proverbs and, and, and we've got the sayings of the wise that are included in there, we've got the sons of Korah, we've got different groups. Uh, Moses has a uh, proverb. Uh, Solomon has uh, uh, two that are mentioned specifically. But they gathered wise sayings from different kingdoms. And so the Magi, associated with either Persia or Babylon, whatever, wherever they came from, were familiar not just with their own sayings, but with the sayings of other wise men as well. And so their understanding, we would assume, and it, it, that's all we can do because we can't say for sure, but the presence of Daniel among the wise men in the kingdom of the Babylonians and later with the Persians, he would have been faithful to teach those Old Testament prophecies to the wise men. So, the wise men are warned by a dream and they don't go back to Herod. They flee by another way. Herod finds out he gets pretty mad. And, uh, and then Joseph and Mary are warned by an angel of the Lord to go down to Egypt to protect the baby Jesus or the young boy Jesus from being killed by Herod. And so they do. They go down to Egypt and they stay there until Herod dies. But in the process... Multiple baby boys in the city of Bethlehem are slaughtered by Herod in his attempt to put to death the one who is called the king of the Jews. And like Joe said, this is the first attempt by the enemy to put an end to the life of the king of the Jews. It won't stop here. It starts here but it doesn't start by the Jews. It's not the Jews that are trying to put Jesus to death here. It's the Gentile, Herod, King Herod. And uh, just as a, as a precursor of the, of the persecution 
that the followers of Jesus Christ will have, both from Jews and Gentiles alike, up until this very present day. They stay down in, in Egypt. They come back, um, fulfilling a prophecy out of the book of Hosea, out of Egypt I've called my son. They go up to Nazareth rather than to Bethlehem, fulfilling a prophecy that says he will be called a Nazarene. And we see all of the prophetic scriptures being able, they're coming together now at the birth of Jesus Christ. But what does the story of the Magi add to the birth accounts of Jesus? And one thing that we can say for certain, the Gentiles, these Magi who represented Gentiles, were the first to recognize and to worship the Jewish Messiah. And that too was prophesied in the Old Testament. God told Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, 2300 years before the birth of Christ, that one of your descendants is going to be the one through whom I will bring blessing to the entire world. Kings and nations of kings will come and they will bow before your descendant. These are in, uh, they, they begin in Genesis 12 and repeated in Genesis 22. Um, turn in the book of Isaiah real quickly. I'll just show you two verses out of, out of Isaiah. Chapter 60, okay? Back in the Old Testament. Now the Old Testament is difficult to read. The words are hard to pronounce. It's history that we're not familiar with. But the meaning of the events of the New Testament cannot be seen apart from understanding the prophecies of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 60, so Isaiah the prophet, now Isaiah is writing 700 B.C., 720 B.C., or 800 B.C., even further back. He speaks this prophecy in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear unto you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The nations, not just the Jewish nation, the nations will come to your light. In verse 6, it says, A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all of those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense, and they will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. The book of Psalms, 72.10, Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents the kings of Sheba and Sheba offer gifts. Let all of the kings bow down before him. All of the nations serve him. And so these prophecies going all the way back to the time of Abraham are being fulfilled um, 
among the Gentiles uh, by the Jewish Messiah. And so one of the reasons uh, I believe Matthew includes this account is Matthew's audience in his gospel is primarily Jewish people. And one of the biggest difficulties the Jewish people had in accepting Jesus as their Messiah is the fact that he was also accepted by the Gentiles. A couple of Paul's epistles, that's what they're all about. Showing that Jesus is not just for the salvation of the Jewish people. He is for the salvation of all men. This is the first attempt on Jesus' life, and it begins to show us the protection the Lord has of him throughout his life. And uh, for an application for us, so I mean like, okay, that's a nice story, but what does it have to do with us? What's the point? What's the point of the whole wise men thing other than, it, you know, it's a nice story? Really, what do we get out of it? Okay, so it's another piece in the puzzle of all of these prophecies coming about. And why is that even important, though? <laughs> okay, uh, you know, one, uh, it, it's... Um, Yeah. One of the strongest testimonies to the truthfulness of the Bible is the Word of God. When God describes what a God should be like in the book of Isaiah, in other words, all of the nations had their own gods, but when the true God, the Lord, the God of Israel, the King of all the earth, when he said, when he identified, this is what a true God looks like. Here was the test. If, he says, if your God is a true God, you let him tell me the end from the beginning. The true God is able to speak in the present that which is going to occur in the future. And when you study the prophecies of the Old Testament, even historically, these Old Testament prophecies are clearly written before the times of their fulfillment. Written prophecies that relate to King Cyrus in Isaiah 45, written by the prophet Isaiah 250 years before he's even born. And his name is named in the book. And you can go back and there's manuscripts and ancient documents of the book of Isaiah that can be read and have been discovered that have these prophecies that clearly show they were spoken before the events were fulfilled. So the fulfillment of prophecy is what helps give rise to our confidence in the scripture that this truly is the word of God. The other thing, and I'll just 
this is this is what I want to end with. These magi traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to honor and worship this king. It says they honored him with great joy. They honored him with humble worship. They honored him with costly gifts. They bowed down before him. And it just, it, it causes me to stop and ask myself, in what ways have I honored this king in the last week? Or however far back you want to go. Psalm 50:23. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. Have we been thankful to the Lord? And not just be thankful, but to express that thanks to the Lord? You see, there's a difference between I am thankful, but what we're called to do in order to honor the Lord is to express that thanks to Him. Back in the book of Leviticus, um, we've talked about this event before. God gave to Moses all of the plans for how sacrifices were to be offered before him and how incense was to be, uh, be burned before him as, as, a, as, a, as an offering of worship. And the first time they tried it out, Abraham's, uh, Moses, uh, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they were priests, sons of Aaron, his firstborn, two sons. And out of their eagerness and the goodness of their heart, they offered incense on the altar to the Lord. But it wasn't the incense that God commanded them to offer. And immediately, the fire of God fell from heaven. And it burned them both up. And here's what, Moses, here's what the Lord said to Moses. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people... I will be honored. So Aaron kept silent. So in my daily life, I have to look at the things that I choose to do and not do and, and really think about this verse and say, is my life something that treats the Lord as holy? Are my choices choices which honor Him? Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. John 5.21 or 5.22. For not even the Father judges anyone. He's given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is what separates the faith of Christianity 
from all other religious systems. They think by their acts and their behavior and their prayers and even their faith perhaps that they're honoring God but they're rejecting the Son of God. And the Lord says, if you don't accept my Son, you can't accept me. If you don't honor him, you're not honoring me. And so just, just a little um, encouraging conviction. Do our lives really bring honor to the Lord every day? Again, they traveled, I haven't done the map, but maybe a thousand miles to come and to honor this king of the Jews. Is Jesus being honored in our lives today by what we do and the choices that we make? I'll give you one example. Um, of, this is kind of what brought this up. So Christy and I don't watch a lot of TV, but there's a few shows that we, dramas that we've been watching for the last year or two. And it just seems they, they can't give you, okay, I'm excluding Hallmark, all right? <laughs> but by and large, you know, every show, people jumping into bed with, other people, they never show the consequences of how that breaks up a marriage or brings deadly diseases. All kinds of activities that the Lord regards as abominations and we're just being fed that stuff. Is This is just normal. It's the way people are. This is the way people should be. These are nice people and they, they are. But it, it just brought a check in my heart you know the last the last program we watched on this one series was just the other night and we <laughs> we just had enough you know i'm not going to watch that anymore things like that you know what in my life am i deliberately doing that i would say that's nah, not really honorable to the lord and let the holy spirit tell you Okay, you decide for yourself what kind of TV you want to watch, but as for me and my house, we're not watching that anymore. <laughs> so, uh, um, Father God, we truly, we really truly do desire to honor Jesus Christ. And Lord, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Father, we just want to do that. You show us how. Weed out the things in our own hearts that would be dishonoring to the Lord. Help us to really focus on the things that do honor the Lord. Father, these, these Gentile men... rode hundreds of miles over a number of months to come and bow before Jesus. We are so blessed, Father, 
we have the Spirit of Christ living within us. We don't have to travel anywhere. Christ is in us. Father, would you show us ways in which we can give honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, that his name might be lifted up and glorified by the deliberate choices that we make. In Jesus' name, amen.